Hey guys, welcome back to Cinematics. I'm Ryan. And I'm fucking up, fucking up, fucking up, Polly. And today we are going to go back a little bit further into the past to talk about one of my favorite movies from one of my favorite directors, Arrival. <laughs> never seen the aviator with leonardo dicaprio i'm gonna have to send you this clip where he's uh he's sitting in his movie theater and he's been sitting in there for months and he's he's just repeating himself he's got like really long fingernails and his hair's all grown out and he's got this big beard and everything and he's just going come in with the milk come in with the milk come in with the milk <laughs> <laughs> i was literally right before they shut everything down i was like man i should get my hair cut it's getting too long and i'm getting tired of it and then they're like guess what Nobody gets to do anything anymore. And I'm like, well, <laughs> fuck. I just learned how to give myself a haircut. Didn't didn't go too bad. I mean, I think for your hair it would be fine, but mine. I is, think for yours um, it'd be a little complicated. <laughs> yeah, I would not look good. I can guarantee you. Even even if I like studied and researched the first time I did it, I would fuck it up. I can barely trim my beard properly on the right side because I have to use my left hand and I can barely make oh, that okay. work. So I don't know how I'd fucking cut my own hair. You could just shave your head. Well, I mean, I've thought about that, but I really don't have the head for bald. <laughs> just tell them that you had a Britney Spears moment. So Arrival is a 2016 film directed by Denis Villeneuve. It's written by Eric Heiserer and is based on a story by Ted Chang called Story of Your Life. Listening to Villeneuve talk about it, they he read the story first and then they got going on writing the script and they changed some things to make it adapt more to film. It stars Amy Adam, Jeremy Renner, Forrest Whitaker as the three primary roles and then also as the sort of, I mean, he's not a villain. He's the, and Michael Stuhlbarg is the antagonist. As much as there is an antagonist. Okay, yeah, I see. He's kind of opposition. Yeah. The whole film kind of pits. It's a competition of ideologies in a lot of ways. It, it puts mm -hmm. on one side Amy Adams, who plays Dr. Louise Banks, who's a linguist and a professor. It puts her on one side where she is the sort of voice of common reason and the idea of we just, we need to talk to them, we need to take it slow, let's... The quote is, let's talk to them before we start throwing math questions at them. Whereas yeah. the other side of that, we have Forrest Whitaker being Colonel Weber, and then Agent Halpern is Michael Stuberg, who uh, essentially embody this idea of more conflict-based approach. Everything is, an is presented in opposition of us versus them and, and winning and losing. And, and they actually make a big statement about that with the Mahjong game that the, the Chinese use to try and communicate, which mm. they're worried will teach the aliens only the discussion of win versus lose, which could, you know, incite conflict, which is interesting, I guess, because that's, there's so many little lines like that, you know, where they, where they talk about um, this thing or that thing, but it, it, all these little pieces that go together to push towards this idea of language being a defining part of our worldview. Uh, they talk about the theory is the Sapir-Whorf theory. I they talk about it in the movie. I don't know if you oh, where uh, your language determines the way that you think. Yeah, and there's there's different yeah. types of the hypothesis. There's the strong end, which is that depending on your language, you physically think differently. And then there's the soft end, which is which is more on the range of you 
your the way in which you speak, the language you speak impacts how you think, but it doesn't physically change how you think. Oh, okay, yeah. For the way they presented it in the film, um, they actually there's three linguists who have responded to the representation, and all of them agree that the the way the themes are the themes and the ideas and the the hypotheses are presented are accurate to the ideas in theory. Um, the languages that they've created, the way in which they're teaching language, like the slow process, all the stuff they've done has been very well researched and like properly presented in the way that it would exist. There is one linguist who who goes out to say that the way in which they stretch the sapir Whorf hypothesis goes beyond reality in any way. Like they, there's no way that they can imagine people actually being able to see the future because they learn a different language i think for what the movie actually deals with that that works it, it has to you know you you can't not go that far if if you're going to be trying to say the things that they're trying to say here which um i mean on a base level it's a lot of like communication over conflict and difficulties in in interpretation of language and how easy it is to misinterpret something that somebody is saying to mean one thing or another depending on you know even with the the english language like i'm just going to use the the example duck right that has two different meanings the animal and then getting to a lower position physically <laughs> i guess <laughs> like a, getting to a physically lower position that's how I, I would define it i'm not on google looking up the textbook <laughs> definition but and if, if somebody doesn't know the language they're like what do you mean duck I don't I don't see any ducks anywhere. You're like, no fucking duck. <laughs> Get the fuck down. And I think that we see all over the place. We see problems, especially with English um, in that way, because we have so many words that sound the same and mean different things, slightly different things or very, very different things. And unless you are integrated in the language, it becomes very difficult to to keep all of those in mind when you're learning it at first, you know, in the same way that like with Mandarin or, um, or Cantonese, the varying tonal levels with which you express different characters changes the meaning of that character. And some can mm -hmm. have three or four different tonal levels that will change what that means. So English isn't the only language that has it, but it's a common problem with, with the way we communicate. And so it's cool that they're kind of diving into that, especially for a sci-fi, because you see all these sci-fi movies made about aliens, and it's always a big ship comes over the White House and blows something up. Yeah, I was actually thinking of Independence Day when uh, right? they had they had Data, the guy who played Data up against the window, and they just had the tentacle wrapped around him, and then it was just it was really easy for them just to use him as a method to to communicate. It's like that doesn't make any sense. That's kind of stupid. It works, but I I don't know. It's too easy well that's just it it's just like the movies don't want to bother trying to figure out how the communication barrier would happen because it's too much effort and time for the movie to deal with when they have a different story to tell so i get it i do get it there's you got to find a way to make it work and not take up the entire movie but well actually i think it works it works for arrival only because you don't really find out what the aliens are after until the end of the movie pretty much yeah well that's just it right because it is the story it's a story about learning how to communicate across barriers with someone who doesn't know your culture and your language and and that's not something that you see a lot of in sci-fi there's 
very few examples. There's a first contact, I think, with Jodie Foster that has does something similar, but you don't really see that. And so it was it was really cool to see that done in such an effective way. I I generally have a hard time labeling a favorite director, but as time goes on, I just keep coming back to Denis Villeneuve as being on top of the pile for directors for me. Not because what he does is, like he doesn't have necessarily a distinctive thing that defines his stories per se, that makes him stand out in the way that like Wes Anderson does. Mm. You know, Wes Anderson has like several defining like cinematographic storytelling styles. So you watch a Wes Anderson movie, it doesn't matter if you know it is or not, you know it is. He doesn't have that, but he just makes good movies with good stories and strong characters, you know? Yeah, and I don't know many of his movies. Like, I know Blade Runner 2049 and Arrival. I'm sure there's a couple other ones that I just can't think of off the top of my head, but they all look different, too. Yeah, well, the other big one he did was Prisoners, which is a fantastic film as well. He's, so he's a Canadian filmmaker from Montreal, I believe? Quebec, for sure. And... He talks a lot about the struggles of making film in Canada because it's not, it's hard. We have the benefit here of having government and company-based grants that help people fund projects. But the money isn't there in enough quantity to do the kind of things that, like, say, for science fiction. He has an interview on set for this movie where he, he said since he was a kid, he's wanted to do sci-fi. But... Where do you get the money to make a science fiction movie in Canada? Yeah. <laughs> like one that actually looks good and that does something more than just use what already exists. You mm -hmm. know, you can make a soft sci-fi, say, with not a little, very little money, but doing something like they built that whole ship. Oh, shit. Yeah. The wide shot, obviously, it's it's some visual effects with the, with the whole structure, but they built the tunnel. They built the room. They built a structure so that when they're doing that lift scene, they're actually, there's actually a physical thing there that they're touching and interacting with. Yeah. That was all constructed. I liked uh, Jeremy Renner's reaction when they were going up on the wall, like the way the gravity shifted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I don't know that like, I like the, uh, the realism of the characters, especially Jeremy Renner, like his, his reactions to a lot of things I found really authentic. I would say both of them too. Oh yeah, for sure. And th that their reactions were mm -hmm. different too, for the yeah. different characters. Jeremy Renner is the scientist is there being like, this is real. This is artificial gravity. And he's looking at all these scientific feats and being completely excited and mind blown. Meanwhile, Louise, who's, not used to being involved with the astrophysical part of things she's now overwhelmed yeah. by that as well as yeah. the alien as everything else and that was actually something with structure uh that i thought was really interesting the way the movie presented the first uh the first little section like there's a, there's the opening bit of course where uh everything is pretty just standard filmmaking technique but when they get to the base the way that they edit things together is scattered it's sort of dreamlike it's very it's very much like a person in a daze from seeing you know and seeing the world through louise's eyes we're seeing her having this sort of mini i want to say panic attack because it isn't but she's she's overwhelmed she's in a daze she can't believe what's going on and she's just being guided by these people who are brisk you know, it's just like to the point. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. And she's just like, I don't know what's going on. Just take me now. It, it was really cool to be connected to the character that way, 
because it makes you feel what she feels. And then it continues that through the movie, putting you in her in her eyes. I mean, it continues that because as she learns the language and as she discovers what's actually going on, the structure of the film actually mirrors that discovery. So we're seeing time the way she's seeing time as the movie moves forward. So it starts out very linearly. It starts out very much like you go in, you come out, everything's fine. She's a little dazed, but whatever. She goes in again. She starts learning. She comes out. And from that point on, it starts to fall apart. So there'll be like, there'll be scenes where she's just in her room sleeping and then suddenly she's somewhere else. And then she's like working on something and she's somewhere Mm -hmm. else and she's somewhere else. And it feels like nothing is linear. It's just a bunch of collections of scenes all blending together. And then eventually you get that scene with when her flash forwards and also the aliens just invade reality. Well, the present oh right when she's in her her room and she sees one of them just standing there right yeah yeah she's talking to ian but then also it feels like she's talking to somebody else she's always Mm -hmm. looking away from and then she starts talking to the alien which i have to say also i really enjoyed the way they treated that word oh yeah i think it's only said once I think it's the same way for, uh, say, if a zombie apocalypse happened or something. I think people would feel really weird saying the word zombie. It's like in Shaun of the Dead. It's like, don't don't say that. What? The Z word. It's like, because it's ridiculous. <laughs> because it's ridiculous. And it is, you know. They show her the recording in the beginning, and she looks like she's ready to say it. And then she just says, they. Yeah. How many are there? It's it's real. It, you, you feel like you're with real people in a real situation. That's, I think, one of the things that makes me really put Denis Villeneuve up there as a director is that he knows how to work with his actors to craft real characters in real situations and make you feel that. The other thing I really liked about this too is it builds up suspense, but it doesn't take ages. It has a good pace to it. It's because it, it follows the screenplay structure really well. When you look at the the times, like 10 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever, right? It keeps the suspense going throughout the whole movie but it doesn't feel like it takes ages to get to the point yeah and it it gives you just enough in little phases that you're always interested without giving you too much you know i kind of went through a little bit and wrote down some points that i thought were hints for what was going on because having watched it the second time i started picking up on some things that i seem obvious now but you know at the time i didn't even think about like the first line of the movie is i used to think this was the beginning of your story over top of the shot of her quiet dark apartment yeah 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 it's also kind of starting to tell you that oh what really is time and how does it work and maybe it doesn't exactly line up the Mm -hmm. way that you think it's going to so pay attention to that there was also that line uh, if you want science call your father which was the other really big hint for me the second time through. Because, oh, wait, science. The only person we've talked to in the movie who talks about science is is Ian. Yeah. You know, so it's like, oh, hints that Ian's her father. And then the next time we see that same scene, we now know the truth. So we come back to that again with that uh, zero-sum gain part. Where at the same time that she's hearing it in the... I hesitate to say present. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the present time, 
she she's hearing the zero sum gain and at the same time she suddenly in the future mm, remembers yeah, the yeah, phrase yeah. zero sum gain <laughs> you're like oh damn it's hard though because i mean t- time is weird and you don't the nice thing about this movie i guess is you don't have to understand it to understand what's going on but it also does kind of follow conceptions of how time works in the sense that time is in essence a dimension that can be considered a physical dimension if you were to exist in the right place in the right space and so talking about the present is difficult because oh well it's the present in terms of the movie and it's the present in terms of where she's conscious i guess but then how does that work because if she's conscious here but the time futures already existed then technically she would be conscious everywhere right it's kind of like having deja vu or something like that. Like I've had times where I'm just sitting there and then kind of thinking to myself, I'm like, I swear I've lived this before. This is, this is really weird. Maybe that's what they were kind of going for as well as just a sense of deja vu and the way it's kind of disjointed in a lot of ways. It certainly feels like it with the way they flash through and things, at least until you get to the end, that last bit where she's fully learned the language and she starts using her power, quote unquote power, to get the information she needs which was i didn't really realize it at first but watching it again i you can see a lot more in her performance of how in that scene she's she doesn't know what she's doing and she just calls and then she's projecting herself intentionally to find the information to do what she's got to do so she's kind of like gained control of this new new ability the one thing i thought was kind of cool too this doesn't really have anything to do with the concept of time or anything in the movie but when they brought the birds in to keep an eye on the oxygen level it kind of reminded me of the old mine shafts and stuff like that when they used to do that back in the day and even even the ship itself kind of looked like a mine shaft in a way so they're going in mining for information and that's cool i didn't think of that at all but i like that it's definitely like rocky mine tunnely even the ships themselves look like either, well, they called them shells, which you could say that they look more like eggs, but to me, they look like rocks. They, so they're actually, so they are meant to look like eggs, but where the actual shape comes from is an asteroid. Oh. Denis Villeneuve apparently saw a photo of an asteroid, this one specific one that I just, I lost the name of already, but there's a specific asteroid that has a distinctly egg-like shape but like also concave-ish. And he looked at it and saw it and thought, this is the ship because it the egg shape gives it this sort of haunting, mysterious sort of feel like, oh, this looks kind of mm-hmm. egg-like. Is this like some kind of colony ship? Or, you know, you, it makes you, you really wonder. So it's definitely meant to look like an egg. The egg is the more obvious one too, right? For the whole theme of the movie and everything, or one of the themes in the movie is life and everything. And the egg makes more sense, but I was... Looking at him, like, it just looks like a, a rock you'd see by a, a lake shore or something like that. Could you imagine skipping that thing, man? It would go so far. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I also like, too, is when all the ships disappear at the end, they don't just, like, dart off into space. They just fade away. Yeah. That's uh, an interesting concept compared to what we're used to seeing in, in movies like that, where they just dart away. or That's actually what they... Usually, at least in my experience of watching these kind of movies, that's what they always do. I, this is the only one I can think of where they just have a different way of traveling the way that they do. Well, and it, and it totally matches, right? Because, I mean, the aliens, Abbott and Costello, are they live in this perpetual fog 
they are very floaty and slow moving and they like with all of their control over time like it totally just makes sense that their ship would just fade into a mist and vanish versus launching itself with some kind of crazy drive yeah exactly the other thing i liked about this movie too and even though they came close to it a few times they didn't use the word arrival in it they said arrive and arrived i think but that's it i was expecting i was like come on say it just do it just do it get it over with <laughs> i uh but that oh too going back i to your canary point i also i really appreciated they never actually said why the birds were there oh yeah they didn't they just put the bird in the cage down they put the little equipment set up they don't talk about anything like that they don't give any long-winded exposition for why anything is there and yet you still understand you still get it because they reference it the scene when uh, louise takes her her suit off she looks at the bird mm. sees the birds pretty calm and chirping and alive and she just disrobes because she knows it's safe because the bird's been fine the whole time so you know why it's there, but they don't have to tell you. They don't have to have some dumb forced question where Louise is like, oh, why is why are you bringing a bird in here? Oh, well, let me tell you all about science and coal miners. And blah, 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 blah. Well, and the other thing I thought was cool, too, was uh, the radio chatter. Because usually in, in movies, when you hear radio chatter, you can't really understand what the hell they're saying. But in this, if you listen, you can actually hear them monitoring the oxygen levels and the gravity and all that kind of stuff. So if you're paying attention to that, you could probably pick up on why they brought the bird in, why they have their hazmat suits. And the other the other thing to do with that, too, is when they walk in with their hazmat suits, they probably look more like aliens to Abbott and Costello than anything, right? Like, they look like our own interpretation of aliens, if that makes sense. Yeah, no. We, we picture aliens as these weird beings in spacesuits. There's actually this great story... It's a short story. Oh, no, I don't remember the name of it. I read it so long ago. It's by a Scottish author named Ian M. Banks. And he writes this short story where the whole thing is told. Spoiler alert if you haven't read it. The whole thing is told from the perspective of a conscious tree on an alien planet. But you have no idea. He's just bemoaning how lonely he is because he can't find a mate. He's like a shepherd for some weird animals. And he's just hanging out, being sad. And there's like a line here and there, that a description of like how he does something that hints at it. And then he sees an egg or a an, an, uh, shell or something appear. And this strange creature, this metallic thing, it's a, it's a human in a spacesuit. And he basically is like, what is this? And he picks it up and rips its limbs apart, trying to figure out what it is like people would tear apart flower petals or something. And if you have figured out what's going on by that point... The story doesn't try and make it grotesque or anything. It's just this tree popping arms and legs off a human effortlessly trying to determine what it is. But you know that he's literally tearing apart this lone space adventurer who's here to explore this planet limb by limb. Oh, shit. <laughs> this giant talking tree, you know? That's terrifying. It reminds me of those those trees from Wizard of Oz that throw apples at people. Imagine just one of them or the fun fruit trees. You ever see that commercial? Oh, yeah, I think you showed me that one. Imagine one of those just tearing someone apart limb from limb, just trying to figure out what they are, just laughing. Oh, God. Oh, it's just fucking no, terrifying. I'm going to write a story on that. It actually, like, it made me physically uncomfortable reading that short story <laughs> in the best way. Yeah. Um, and that that's kind of the same thing, right? It's like from the perspective of, of Abbott and Costello, we, we see these. And so, and they address that, which I also love that she's like, we can't, they're not going to understand 
the difference between human and Louise if I don't show them myself. Right. Because they all look the same, right? They're all just orange things with big, clear faces, right? Yeah. And that's uh, one thing I want to throw in there as well is uh, they took some some tips from Alien, how they lit their faces up underneath the helmets. Because usually those masks and those helmets don't have lights in them. But those ones did just so you could see their faces better. So I, I appreciated that. They actually also collaborated with Creature Designer from Prometheus oh, okay, for the yeah. design of, of Abbott and Costello. That's something I also really liked, too, is they didn't have any humanoid appearance. They they looked really bizarre and out of this world. Villeneuve said that that his intention was to make them feel like a nightmare. And it's like a combination of like octopus and whale and squid and like all these underwater creatures to build this alien. But I would disagree that they don't have any humanness because of two points. One, they look like a hand. That's what I was thinking, too. Yeah. The first time I watched it, I was like, that's a fucking hand. Yeah. And then it raised its finger and it was, I'm like, oh, it's like if our fingers just split open and shot ink out of them. <laughs> and then there's, there's a couple of points where they're trying to anthropomorphize these aliens and present them as connecting to Louise. Like when she's at the end, when she's in their smoke pit thing and they zoom in on essentially the knuckle yeah. part mm-hmm. of the hand. But it, to me, it always looked like a brow oh, okay yeah it has this sort of sense of like there's a ridge that kind of feels like eyebrows and a concave part that could have been eyes if there were eyes there but he also has said that he wanted them to feel like death the anthropomorphi- anthropomorphization mm. of death so that slow build of tension that finally reveals when you find out that they're actually three times larger than you thought they were and the top of them is just like this yes. shrouded somewhat head-shaped thing way up top. Yeah, it kind of looks like if you saw someone in a hood from a distance or something with an overhead light above them, you can't see their face. That's kind of what it looked like. It was like this little nub thing with some shoulders on it. Exactly, right? And it was just so creepy. But the movie also makes it really easy to not be afraid of them because we see it through Louise's eyes and she's so comfortable with them. It's an appearances can be deceiving sort of philosophy i guess where you see these things you're like holy shit these things are terrifying because you can't really you can't really see them that well they're always hidden in some mist and then you find out that they're actually there to to help people and even the 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 music the sounds they make are meant to be like they sound like whales so if you're thinking about it that way it seems like it would probably be friendly but it's it's kind of intimidating the low rumbles and the and the occasional bursts and also the fact that the soundtrack sounds like the way they talk, I just love that. It makes it so I wouldn't sit and listen to the whole soundtrack end to end. But in the movie, it's so perfect. Yeah, I found I actually have the soundtrack on Spotify and I found it a little weird to listen to just on its own. I think it's something that you just I mean, it's a good soundtrack, but I, I feel like it just works better with the movie as opposed to sitting and listening to it. I do put it on sometimes when I'm writing, if it's a, if it's, that's the mood that I want to enhance. I'll turn it on and I'll sort of try and put myself in that space again to write. But I don't ever just listen to it other than like the one song, like the t- title song, I guess. I guess on that point, something that I found really interesting, Villeneuve has said that he, he hates green screens. 
which I can totally vibe with. Green screens are annoying to use. They're hard to act to. They add a bunch of time and money in post. So he likes to avoid using them as much as possible, which is why they built all of these structures. I think the only places they really used them were in the effects of Abbott and Costello behind because that, that white glass that they're in front of is just a big diffusion frame. It's like probably a 20 by 40. Oh, okay, yeah. That of makes soft sense. diffusion, probably. Well, they would have used like a light grid or a quarter grid or something like that. And they just had a solid constructed piece and then they just blasted light through it because the set was designed, the way the set was designed, there was no other place to send light from. Oh, okay. Except there. Yeah. But it was also cool in that sense because the director of photography, Bradford Young, and then the production designer, Patrice Vermette, had to work together quite closely to design the sets in such a way that they could be lit properly and also still perform the task that Villeneuve wanted them to perform, which limits but also gives a lot of interesting motivation to the light when they're in there, which I thought was super cool. Yeah, because it's a very it's a very coarse location. That's that's one thing is it's very very bumpy and when the light hits it it casts a lot of it casts a lot of shadows and you got lows and highs and stuff like that so and it's all like black gray like slaty gray black so it absorbs a lot of light which means balancing and trying to trying to actually light that in a way that you can see what you need to see and give it some depth would be quite difficult and and it also would have been difficult to film in because first of all with all of that bumping and coursing, I mean, I don't know how fragile or not it would have been, but like everybody on the crew in there was wearing booties. You know, you got to prevent getting dirt in there because imagine cleaning that. Oh yeah, you'd be doing paint touch-ups and... And they had a huge super techno in there. So they were rolling this thing around on dance floor, which is essentially just like big flat platforms that are meant to hold the hundreds and hundreds of pounds that this techno crane weighs. And like moving this thing around to get all these shots in this small space, I mean, it's pretty big, but small for a techno crane. So it present it would have presented all kinds of like actual filming problems as well, but it would have made it really interesting to be there. It looked like a lot of fun. So I guess stat wise, the first, the only production company who apparently wanted to pick this movie up when they were pitching it wanted to change Amy Adams' role to be a male, and they decided. The producers and Villeneuve decided they were going to stick to their guns and keep it as a female lead. They didn't have Amy Adams at the time. So they self-financed. Not self-financed, but they found other... They essentially somewhat independently financed. Oh, yeah, because during the beginning credits, I'm like, holy shit, this is a lot of credits or whatever before the movie even starts. Like, this this production company and this studio and that studio. So the producers who started it... 21 Laps Entertainment, I believe, is the production company that initially started the project. They approached Villeneuve, offered him a, a script, asked him what he wanted to do most. He said he really wanted to do sci-fi. They gave him the short story, made the script, tried to get it financed, didn't get anything from the studios. So they went and essentially self-financed or independently financed, and they got an estimated $47 million for it, which... Overall, for a sci-fi, first of all, it's pretty low, especially for all of the construction that they did. Opening weekend, it only made $24,074,047, but it grossed in the U.S. $100,546,139, so it more than doubled its budget, so overall a success. 
and cumulatively worldwide it doubled that at 203,388,186. Yeah, probably probably just took a little bit to ramp up to. People probably saw the trailer for this and says, eh, whatever, and then people started talking about it, and then it just ramped it up and just killed it pretty much. Well, and that's, that's why they changed the title. That's why they didn't go with the short story title of Story of Your Life, because they were worried people were going to think it was a rom-com. Oh, yeah. They wanted people to know that it was it was meant to be a sci-fi and it wasn't about that. But also, this it was made in 2016. And I mean, the movies that were coming out in 2016, like the Marvel franchises that were there, people do not spend money in risky ways on movies these days. Mm-hmm. So unless they know the franchise, it's hard to get people to come out to see the average person to come out to see an uh, like a, a standalone IP because you just don't know. You might spend thirty dollars on the movie and walk out because you hate it so much or something, right? So like it's a risk. But um, those are also the movies that need that support. They need you to go see them because yeah, hundred percent. That's the only way they're ever going to continue to get made. The low budget part does help that there were not very many filming locations. It was all done in, in Montreal, and it pretty much it's just the landing site, the camp, and her house slash the university. So less locations, less set builds. There's a lot of things that you can save money on that way. Apparently they ended up selling the movie for like so, oh, I don't remember the number now. Anyway, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna specify that number because I can't remember. But they sold it at Con after having self finance or like fundraised for it. So a success story of another success story of somewhat independent movies getting made despite Hollywood. Yeah. At the level of Hollywood and getting that level of distribution, which was super cool. Oh, I guess I should I should correct my green screen statement because there was another point where they use green screen i just realized in that communication center where they have all the all the people the different part sites on the big screen at the end they agree they green screened those screens and digitally added those after oh yeah that makes sense that's little stuff you have to you you can't film a monitor very well the likelihood of getting like those interlacing lines oh okay so it doesn't look all fluttery for the camera Camera frame rate and everything. Yeah. Essentially, there, there's two there's two methods of projection. There's progressive projection, which is what cinema uses in theaters primarily, which is essentially every frame is represented fully. You just see the whole image, but interlaced to save data for cable, streaming, TV kind of stuff, they show half and half. Half of the screen will be lines of data, and it'll be like, blank bar data blank bar data blank bar data and then the next frame it'll alternate and it goes so fast that you can't tell it's like when you use certain lights with certain frame rates and everything you can still get the flicker rate yeah but primarily that's leds because leds are electric lights and and the reason that electric lights flicker well i mean all lights are electric obviously but (laughs) i was was like hmm (laughs) tungsten bulbs and and hmi bulbs and things like that they're like a constant burn so once they heat up and start glowing they're just always glowing leds only light up when power is going through and standard electric power runs at 60 hertz and it has a flicker rate in the the power because energy electricity is a wave so it 
the light will flicker with the the 60 hertz frequency so fast that human eyes can't see it but a camera filming 24 frames in a second will definitely see it yeah i, rem- I remember uh, yeah it's coming back to me now learning about this this stuff <laughs> <laughs> oh the film days they're coming back to me and and the other thing i guess going back to that budget part that was really interesting villeneuve and bradford had uh, a way in which on set they referred to what they were doing they called it dirty sci-fi which essentially, in his de- his description of this, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not directly quoting, but I'm mixing up the direction or the order maybe, but this is a, basically what he said, which is that the movie is supposed to just happen on a bad Tuesday morning, like you're riding the bus to school and it's raining and horrible out and you're just staring into the clouds and daydreaming. Yeah, I, w- I was actually thinking about this just with like the whole crisis the world's dealing with right now, but it was just something that kind of popped into my head was after they find out about the... The arrival. You ever get that feeling where you're looking around at familiar things, but they seem different after something like that? Like at, at least for me, anyways, with this whole COVID thing going on, every like I don't know for for me, anyways, everything around me that was familiar just kind of seemed just had a different kind of feel to it, I guess. And I there was a part in the movie when I think it was after after she went to the school after the the arrival and there was nobody there and everything and it's all empty and it, everything is just you're in a familiar setting but it's just it's it's just a different feeling that's the best way i can describe it i'm sure there's a word for it but no i i totally i totally get you i mean when i watched this the first time i saw it in theaters when it first came out and um because you don't really see much of of the world you see louise's perspective on what she's doing from the camp and that's pretty much it but the bits you do see from the news stories and things, I was like, that, that seems excessive. I mean, come on, there's just, like, alien ships. Like, people wouldn't do that. And then now, watching back, and I see so many parallels. Mm-hmm. Panic buying the, the Alex Jones-style, <laughs> like, online vlogger guy that's definitely a, a, a reference. You know what I'm talking about, people. It's like, no, Alex Jones, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm tired of them putting water <laughs> with the frogs gay or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, well, it sounds like something he'd say. The one thing, actually, too, with, with all the, the riots and stuff that were happening is th- this is something... I just kind of got off the dark night because I was like, yeah, Joker was right about this. But the like all the riots and them attacking the alien ship with the explosives and everything is all that stuff was just based on fear on what could happen. He's like, you know, the thing about chaos is it's fear. And that's exactly what even now we're kind of experiencing with uh, the novel coronavirus is, uh, you know, people just jumping the gun on a lot of things just because they're they're freaked out about a lot of things buying way more toilet paper than they could ever possibly use and not considering that there are people out there who need it or masks the whole Mm, mask problem mm -hmm. that we have because people are afraid they're afraid and the first thing you do when you're afraid is you take care of yourself but the reason humanity has gone the way that it has and the reason that we organize ourselves into tribes and eventually into cultures and eventually into uh, civilizations and, and countries and nations is that we want to create support networks. We want to be able to take care of each other because at the end of the day, you know, you can say what you want about being uh, independent and taking care of yourself, but at the end of the day, people need people. We have evolved to work together. We have evolved to live together and take care of each other. And 
sometimes I think we forget that when we get afraid and it leads to these chaotic moments, you know? That was one of the things that I appreciated about this movie too, is that you see all of this chaos happening all over the place and some people it bleeds into, but even the people who who get swept up in the chaos of everything, like those soldiers who who bring the bombs into the ship. No, nobody in this movie is presented as a villain. There yeah. isn't a single person that I can look at and be like, that person is a villain. They are a bad person. You know, everybody here is just trying to look out for their best interests and the best interests of their company and do their job or their country and do their job as best as they can. And for Agent Halpern, he's very combat oriented. He's very uh, us versus them. He's very secretive, but that's because he is... I think it was CIA. So he comes from a place of international relations where secrecy is the number one and you just have to protect yourself and keep your nation secret and, and everybody's out to get you. And he's just doing what needs to be done in his mind. And, and then Colonel Weber, who's a colonel and a military man, he's mm, based mm -hmm. in a narrative of conflict, whereas Amy Adams comes from a narrative of communication and talking and thinking and being open to ideas. So, of course, she's going to be the one who's like, why are we fighting them? We should just talk to them. Yeah, I, I think everybody has good justifications for their, their actions, and you can see where they're coming from. You're like, it doesn't not make sense. And and it's not it doesn't treat them like bad people because of it. It just yeah. it just treats them like people trying to do their thing, you know? And I guess it's interesting because you see these people come together and in an ideal world, in a perfect situation, these four people kind of represent the four components of humanity that would the four different parts of us we have our our language and art we have our scientific study and rigor we have our military combat and we have our political relations and government and those four representatives come together to form this essentially a council of people who have to convince each other of the right path and in a perfect world they would have civilized discussion where like arguments and reason and presentation of facts and support would eventually sway one way or another and I think maybe it kind of goes to a theme of miscommunication there in the sense that nobody, none of them listen to each other. Not not none of them. Colonel Weber listens to Louise regularly, and he's really good about being like, okay, I don't understand, but I'll let you have this. Halpern doesn't really listen much, at least not until they get to the end when she has to do a treason in order to, to save the world, essentially. Yeah. But they, they all still do their best, and they come into this situation like that, and, and it just shows that we're not very good at communicating, despite the fact that we've literally evolved to do it. And that is how we have survived so long and how we've gotten to where we are is through communication and sharing of knowledge and ideas. <laughs> but we still suck at it. We're still awful at talking to each other. The advantage that we have today over, was it the 1800s or the early 1900s when the Spanish flu came, is we have, we have lightning fast communication now and everybody can you know, chime in. So people that usually you wouldn't be able to get in contact with or whatever, those people are able to come out and try to chime in on the, you know, on this whole thing too, like doctors and, you know, wh whoever, right? So there's just a lot more information coming out. And I think with everything that's going on, the process of discovering a vaccine and all that kind of stuff will go a lot faster just because you're not literally going from horse and buggy to different places i guess back then they, they they did have vehicles back then but you know what i'm saying yeah but but it's still the same kind of thing i mean they didn't have cell phones they didn't have the internet you know and and you see a lot of that 
helping, but you also see a lot of it not, not because it's there, but because people are refusing to use it. Somebody will say something and be like, hey, this needs to happen. And then half the world will just be like, "Nah, they're making it up. It's also a way to spread a lot of misinformation, too. That's also true. Like the, not that this was intentional, but there was that spread of the idea that if you took acetaminophen. Oh yeah. Ibuprofen. One of the two. Yeah. One, one of the two. If you took it, you would worsen the symptoms of COVID. And then the, the who says, well, there's no real evidence of That's that. That's the problem. <laughs> so who's right? You know, is it who, or is it this guy who says he's done the experiments and I don't have it. So I couldn't take the ibuprofen and do it myself and know. But it's interesting. I was watching this video by this uh, YouTuber. The channel is called Philosophy Tube. It's a really great channel if you're interested in like philosophy and stuff. He does lots of half hour to 45 minute videos on philosophical ideas based in the modern world and things like that. And he talks about Chernobyl in one of his videos and about how despite the fact that we haven't learned from it that misinformation and lies cause death, there's the misinformation and the lies and the cover-ups for the reactor failsafe being basically an explosion button was hidden and it caused a lot of death, uncountable death. And despite the fact that everybody is aware of that now, the um, example he uses is there's a, there was a building fire in England, in London, where the people who built the building knew that the cladding that they used on the building was flammable and they did it anyways because it was cheaper and they didn't tell anybody and then the whole building went up. And they couldn't stop it because the building interior wasn't designed for the cladding to go up so fast. So people didn't learn from it. And now here we are again with this virus. And I mean, well, obviously it was kind of covered up to begin with and, and whatever else. But um, once it actually did get out and people were talking, it's like all of this information is being spread around. Everybody is very aware. But there's still countries like Japan until at time of recording which right now it is... <laughs> what day is it? <laughs> what year? <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> it's, it's, the, uh, it's the 31st of March, and I have a, a, a friend in Japan who has been updating on what Japan is doing in these times. And like literally just today, she updated to say that this uh, weekend, this last weekend, I think it must have been, they finally introduced a soft lockdown for the weekend to see what would happen how it would work but like all of their schools have been open all of their businesses have been open people have been in free roam the whole time and their their news outlets are mostly just spreading that it's not a big deal that people shouldn't worry about it uh you should just go about your lives like normal and i mean i'm not japanese i'm not there i don't know what the what the process is and based on what she said there's some things that that make sense for what they're doing and there's some that don't so even now after all of these instances, we still don't really learn. And I guess that's one of the one of the messages to arrival that I appreciated is that there's always people out there who will say what they think needs to be said. And in in this case, it's the message of of sharing and communicating and and not fighting. Actually, I had a question for you to go back to the movie because we got on a bit of a tangent there. <laughs> Um, so there's three instances of voiceover. There's the opening one, mm -hmm. which makes sense. I mean, it, it sort of introduces you to some of the ideas that you want to think about. It keeps time and connection and stories and whatever in your mind so that as you go forward, you can be thinking about those things so that you can have a chance of figuring stuff out for yourself. The second one is the heptapod voiceover. It's after they get 
they start getting into the swing of things. There's a male voiceover that I sounds like Jeremy Renner. I think it was Jeremy Renner's voiceover. Yeah, I would I would think it is, yeah. But my question to you, because I spent a little bit of time thinking about it, and I mean, I couldn't come up with a solid answer, but I don't know what its purpose is. Like, why is it there? When is it meant to take place? Who is he talking to? Because to me, it it seemed like primarily exposition, but it didn't exposit anything involving like the actual story. It just it was almost like he was having an interview or like talking to somebody about what was going on. Yeah. But then and like it didn't fit with the rest of the film that it would be an exposition because the movie doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. But also, I couldn't find another reason for it to be there because, okay, so to follow that thought up, um, just to clarify before you answer that question, I felt like talking about the idea that like the movie structure references uh, Louise's view on the world, which is that it's, you know, broken up and non-linear and you don't really get a sense of like how long she's been there or whatever. Um, one of the linguists criticized one of the like actual linguists who made comments on what they thought of the linguistical part of the movie made a comment that they skipped a lot of the basic words that would be, would have to be taught before getting to the big concepts. And I was thinking about that. And I'm like, well, yeah, of course, because you're not going to show 15 sessions where they, they do that. They're going to skim over that. And then I thought about it and I was like, how many sessions do they actually have in there? And I was like, they don't have very many. They just have the first one where they figure out kind of what, or they don't know what to do. The second one where they figure out what to do. The third one where they start doing it. And then the fourth one where they start getting answers. Right. But it didn't feel like I missed anything. The, because of the, the way everything blended together and was jumping around, it felt like we could have been there forever and it didn't bother me. And I thought that was super masterful in in how it, presented the passage of time and and made it so that we were shown that they were doing all of these things so the the things that the voiceover were expositing we already knew through the language of the film without having to be told it my best guess maybe just for maybe a world building aspect of it is just maybe more or less an info dump and maybe a progression of time as well but i think it's more or less uh seems more or less an info dump just saying like this is how it works and this is how we're pro progressing through this and this is how we're figuring out the language and maybe it's also a character building like a sort of a character building thing as well where they can see the the relationship between uh louise and ian building up as well and just seeing everybody working together maybe it was sort of like a, a highlight of their time learning this thing right so yeah I don't know. It could be a combination of a bunch of those things, just character building, world building, maybe a little bit of an info dump, but it also just, yeah, I don't know, because then Ian gets into a lot of the, uh, the astrophysics of it as, as well. And he was talking about how they actually traveled there. How do they travel? Do they travel at the speed of light or is there a different way that they do it? Or so maybe it's just explaining, explaining Ian's side of it a little bit more because Louise and Ian are actually because near the end they say like paraphrasing, but they said we're the two that kind of held this together. Or we're the we're the two that kind of kept this thing moving forward. Yeah, that was kind of my implication as well. Though I, um, I just it just felt weird because the movie doesn't do that anywhere else. 
So I, I just didn't, I didn't know why they put it in. So I thought I would see if I was crazy to think that that was the only purpose. But to that point, I, I'm also curious what you thought of this part then, because it was cool that we just see, you know, Louise and we see Ian working their butts off and being tired and kind of exhausted and overworked and whatever, just doing all this stuff. But they both had like 30 people mm. working for them. And you, you always kind of in the background a little bit. They introduce it to him in the beginning. There's one line where they mention that, oh, your team's been working on this forever. So you know that they're there and you know that they have help. I, and I mean, you look at the way that they're interpreting the language, say, and you can, you know, you, there's got to be like 30 people there, like calculating and making, run, building programs because they would have had to program that software that translated it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. Yeah. So they have all these people, but they never once talk about them or show them. Yeah, not not in a really clear way anyways. They're kind of just, most of the time you see them, they're just kind of standing around the table and Ian and Louise are front and center always. You never see them chime in on things or if you do, it's very rare occurrence. Yeah, and I mean, so they did that in that BBC show Chernobyl. One of the characters in that show isn't a real person. She was a fictitious creation that was meant to stand in for like hundreds of scientists who were there to help Legazov and the rest of the crew try and figure out what to do about this situation. But because individual people stories are, for whatever reason, more uh, empathetic, people are more empathetic to individuals than to groups of people. Uh, they put in one person to represent all of them so you connect better. And I, I, I gave me flashes of that where we're seeing Ian Donnelly and Louise Banks are as stand-ins for this whole crew but also their own people because they're the leaders as well but i don't know do you think it worked i think for the most part it worked i think uh especially during ian's monologue when you see them all working together and putting the little the little pieces together and like working on their software and you know ian has his equation and everything i think it i think it still works and there, there is another part where I think they, they had a big discovery from Pakistan or something. He's like, yeah, our friends in Pakistan. I can't remember the exact, the exact discovery that they made, but they did. They were showing that it was. They, they discovered the fact that it was semi-sciographic, meaning that it's, it's characters that represent meaning but not sound. Right. So in terms of that, too, I guess, it, it was good to see that it was a world effort. So I, I think at the end of the day, it does work it's hard to say how the movie would have been structured otherwise if they had to throw in more minor characters like it could have been a little bit bloated and crowded but on the depending on how you did it right well and that's just it it's already a two-hour movie which to be fair it didn't feel like two hours even though i've seen it twice before when i watched it again for the third time i i still it was over and i was like shit that was two hours like, how did that go by so fast, you know? Yeah, the thing, the thing was, when I was going into this, I thought it was a way longer movie than it was for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe it was just because of the, the, the subject matter. But I was expecting it to be at least two and a half hours. Yeah, I mean, it, it does everything it needs to do in those two hours. It never drags. It never makes you wish that you were, you know, getting on with things. Um, and one thing I noticed is that they started revealing stuff a lot sooner than I remembered. Or else it was further into the movie and I just didn't realize how long I'd been watching. But, you know, he tries to, to stagger things and reveal things slower, which I uh, we talked about already with the alien reveal and things like that. And it works super well. But, um, yeah, it was just interesting to see how fast it went by, I guess. 
without feeling like it was rushing at least yeah it didn't drag i can i can definitely say that there's a lot there's a lot in it it keeps its pace nicely it doesn't throw too much at you at once yeah it keeps it simple it doesn't dive into science or any kind of super complex things i think i think <laughs> <Yeah>. interstellar <laughs> lost a, a lot of people to make a comparison here interstellar lost a lot of people at the end because in order to accept the ending you have to understand how and, and not just like have a general idea but have a good sense of how fifth dimensional space works and what the idea of the multiple dimensions are how they interact and like you have to have at least a decent working knowledge of the concept in order to see what happens, understand what's going on, and buy it. You know, so like the actual events going on are actually scientifically plausible. Possibly not so much the going into a black hole to get there part. You'd probably die. But I mean, if you didn't, it's theoretically possible, right? So that that's the thing. Nobody nobody really knows. Nobody's been in a black hole before, as far as as far as we know. <laughs> no. I mean Based on math, you would never be able to go in from an outside perspective. You would just watch this person forever falling and never disappearing because that's how black hole event horizons work. But as a person, you'd probably just end up being squished into your composite atoms eventually. Here, here's my take on it. What if the crazy homeless guy on the street who says he's from the future actually was from the future? Oh my god. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> You cracked it. You, you, you just cracked never know. it. That's uh, that's my point to that. You don't. But yeah, so the connection there I was trying to make, I guess, is that by removing the need to have a whole bunch of back knowledge about the subject or having to explain a bunch of stuff in the movie to make the audience understand, they kept it simple and they kept it about people and they kept it about language, which are things that everybody understands. And so you don't, it keeps you right there and it doesn't distract you. I loved Interstellar. I, it's one of my favorite movies, but I think that's because I do a lot of research into black holes and time and space time and science and all those kind of like more advanced astrophysical physics and, and quantum physics sort of things on my own. So I have a f knowledge of, and I find it fascinating, but for a lot of people it's, it's too much to to suspend your disbelief for if you don't already have a working understanding. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty mindfucky, especially if you don't know the you know some of the theories behind parallel universes and stuff like that as well, the string theory and all that. Well, and the thing with Interstellar was too, it's like love knows no uh, time and space and you know all that too. So. I think just with that, just with that alone, it gets a lot more complicated. Yeah, they were trying to do a couple of different things. And I think I think it's Nolan's best film, personally. I think that he put more heart and soul and himself into it than he has in, in any of the other films. Or at least it feels like he did. Not to demean any of his other movies, but I have one sort of little last couple of small pieces. They're just interesting things I noticed. We, because we try and keep this a little more general and a little more like loose and accessible to people, I didn't want to dive too heavily into the technical parts of this, but there were two pieces that I found really interesting about the technical aspect that I thought were really cool. Uh, the first of which was the first time they go into those tunnels, 
they use zollies, which if you don't know what a zollie is, it's a combination of the word zoom and dolly. So a dolly is like a, a push on the camera where the camera physically moves one way or another. And a zoom is essentially zooming into a closer lens type. But if you combine the two and oppose them, so you dolly in and zoom out or dolly out and zoom in, you get a fluctuation in space because... Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Martin Scorsese did that in Casino, I think. Yeah, it, it actually it originated as an Alfred Hitchcock thing. I believe he was the first one to do it in the movie Vertigo because it, it represented... It was a physical representation of, of the physical vertigo that the character was feeling for a very, very brief level of ex explanation on how lens length works. Depending on your lens, the length of your lens, you'll get different amounts of space between your subject and the background. So as you, uh, as you go in or come out, you will crush or expand distances to make people feel more alone or more close to whatever's behind them. So when you move and zoom at the same time, the character stays in the same position. So you're not creating this like zoom in on their face where you're losing their frame, but the rest, the background changes. So that gives you like this weird sort of warping effect that is very much in the character's head. And they nailed it in this movie. The problem I have with Zollies is that they get overused when people use them in the wrong places just because they're super cool. But when they get into the, the tunnel for the first time and the gravity is all off and everybody's like, what the hell's going on? You see that the Zolly in both directions where he's standing there and he's essentially standing perpendicular or parallel to the ground looking down over literally if gravity wasn't working for whatever reason or if it was, like, <laughs> yeah. he would just fall like 100 feet and die. <laughs> you know, so that like distortion was super cool and the way they used it was really effective. Yeah, I even felt like a little queasy. And usually I don't feel like that, but just seeing the way that he was positioned, he was just st like standing on the wall like Spider-Man or something. That's a pretty long fall. Like it's not absurdly long, but it'd be long enough to say like you'd be screwed if you fell. Yeah, it really puts you in their head and makes you feel what they're feeling. Which Yeah, why didn't they put it like an airbag or something underneath that thing just in case if the aliens just decided to, to switch it off and send everybody back? <laughs> they at least have something. You know what? That's a great question. They should have at least had a crash mat down there or something. Yeah, exactly, or a big airbag. But I guess like if you do that, then your lift can't be there. And if your lift isn't there and you need to get out fast, then you have a problem. Yeah, but I mean, if you, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's a little bit of a compromise, but I see your point. Because, like, yeah, if, they, if for some reason they pissed them off, like if that explosion, for example, had really pissed them off, they might have just flung them out and dropped them instead of letting them float there yeah. comfortably. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing I noticed, which is a technique that I have also in the past, uh, the last short film I had money to make, I used it a lot because I think it looks fantastic and serves a really good purpose. It's short sighting, which essentially is a technique that alters the way you frame people. So in, a, in traditional cinematography, you would frame a person based on your rule of thirds, mm -hmm. where you've got your, your essentially invisible lines on the thirds of your frame, and you would try to position the horizontal and vertical thirds, and you would try and position the eyes of your subject on the intersection of each top corner third so that they're looking into the long length of the, 
of the frame, for those of you out there who might not know that. So that's sort of your standard, and it makes you feel like the person is looking a certain direction towards someone else, and it's how you conversation, because then you can spin around, and you put the other person on the other side of the frame, and then it feels like they're having a conversation and looking at each other because of where the camera's positioned. So what they do in this one, especially with Louise, I noticed it most with her. The other ones, it's a little bit less. But with her, they short side her, which means that they do the same type of framing, but instead of leaving the empty two thirds in front of her, they put it behind her. Okay, yeah. It, it's used in horror a lot as well as other things. Um, but in horror, it's used to hide where the person is going so that you can't, because it hides. So if you're coming around a corner or looking at a mirror, you don't see ahead of time and you feel it feels claustrophobic it feels very trapped it feels powerless like you're stuck and you can't go anywhere you're you're being restricted so it, it's used a lot in horror but it's also used in a lot of other places and they use it especially in the beginning here they short side her a lot sometimes it's obviously intentional other times it might be a subject of just the way the the set is that they have to but until she starts becoming comfortable again, we often see her set up in a short-sighted frame, where she, which makes her feel powerless or trapped or, or uncertain, like she doesn't know where she's going or what she's doing or how things are going to play out, you know? So it just builds some sort of tension in there with the film language to make it feel more constricting, I guess, which when you're already feeling constricted from tiny rooms and enclosed dark spaces, it really adds to the... Uh, feeling of the film so th those were like the two primary like technical pieces i kind of wanted to call to i'm sure there's tons more and if i if i wanted to focus on talking about those i could probably come up with more but we generally try to keep this a little more accessible for the most part yeah so i think i think um in summary on my end i i remember loving this movie so much the first time i watched it and then I watched it a second time, and I just loved it more. And then I watched it again, and I still just love it even more. It's just such a such a nice movie, you know? It's like, it's one of those science fiction movies that you, you feel good watching it, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like you're, like, you're not watching a feel-good movie, in a sense. The ending's a major tearjerker, man. It I don't know is. what it is with some of these movies that we've been watching lately, but it's just like, like, I get choked up especially at the end of this one. <laughs> yeah, no, it's power. And, and like, that was one of the things actually that to, to kind of wrap around and, and bring it back to themes and ideas, you know, like there's the whole communication and how we're, language impacts things, but there's moral questions that the movie poses. Like if you are presented with the knowledge of the future and you know that something is going to happen, would you change it? If you knew that having a kid meant that they were going to get cancer and die at a young age, mm-hmm would you still have that kid? Yeah. And what's your reasoning for it? You know, because they don't say really why she decides to go ahead with it other than to have the experience and whatever. But like, is it personal? Is she choosing to have a child because she wants to have that experience and have those happy moments with that child? Or is she doing it because she thinks it's worthwhile that that child get some form of life? You know, like that's... That's a question that, that I feel like we ask a lot in today's society. Is a short, painful life worth living? Is it worth giving 
life, especially now with the talk of global warming and the way things are going and how the world is very likely going to turn out, is like there's a big philosophical moral question of is it moral to have a child in this day and age when you're just bringing a kid into a world of pain, suffering, conflict? It's going to be a life that's really hard. Is it moral to do that? I think his life life is hard for anybody out there, though. I don't think, like, I don't care if you have money or if you don't. Everybody deals with their own their own problems and their own issues. It is, and and but you're you're adding to just regular life being sucky, uh, which is still oh, yeah, in and you of add itself, cancer like, or you know, of that and, a question. Yeah. You add cancer or you add the fact that, you know, resources are going to be extremely scarce. Or you add the fact that, like, who knows where the earth is going to be in 30, 40 years or where our civilization will be in 30, 40 years. You know, it's like, is that moral? And to her, it was the right, right. decision. But to Ian, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And it, it divided them, you know, so it, it I don't think it's hard to say, because in one way, the movie phrases it to put her in the right. But it also doesn't put Ian in the wrong either. Yeah, agreed. It lets you sit on that question. I don't know, Ryan. I would I would say life's a box of chocolates. Isn't it though? <laughs> that's I don't know. That's because who knows in in the next 50, 100, you know, however long it could be a much better world than we could have ever imagined. I mean, or it could be way worse. Maybe there'll be a breakthrough and we'll suddenly end up on like Kepler one of the Kepler planets and yeah, exactly. we'll get to start fresh, you know, and, and we'll get to, to have a world that is untouched and prepared. And with the knowledge that we have now that hopefully we don't fuck that one up too. Although <laughs> yeah. I mean, more than likely if we get the knowledge of being able to jump planets, people will just be like, fuck it. We'll just leave when it gets too dirty. Yeah. We'll just spread out to everywhere, which kind of sad, but like a virus. Oh, we are. You ever stand <laughs> on top of a really tall hill and look at the city lights at night and think about how much it looks like a mold? Because I do. No, actually, that's interesting. I've never, I've, I've never considered that before. In Calgary, where where we're from, there's a hill. It's called Nose Hill Provincial Park. It's one of the biggest protected areas of native prairie grasslands in Alberta, I believe, and it's certainly the biggest I can think of inside a city. And it's extremely high. It's a plateau. So it's like 60 square K of basically a big plateau. And from the top of it, you are a long ways up and you can see the whole city. And if you go up there in the dark, the lights of a city look like lichen or mold growing on something. The first time I saw that, I was like, this is kind of depressing, yeah. actually. Well, it just shows you how small you are in the in the grand scheme of things as well. Exactly. So... Do these moral questions even matter? Because at the end of the day, we're just like tiny little ants on a rock flying through space at hundreds <laughs> of thousands of yeah. kilometers per second in a universe vastly larger than we can comprehend within a conglomeration of other universes all bumping together. So like, I think it's a okay. good idea to, <laughs> I think it's a good idea to at least consider and pose these questions to yourself. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is I'm not, I'm not a nihilist. Ah, me neither. I think that what's important is what you make important. And so if, if in your mind it's important to take care of the place that we live and it's important to 
be good to everybody and live a moral life, then that's what you'll do. And if it's important for you to make a lot of money, then that's what you'll do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are trying to find what the purpose of life is. You know, that's what religion is all about. Religion is there to... Or spirituality. Yeah, or spirituality. Any, Any sort of sense of something greater, I guess, is there to provide people with some sort of purpose. But I think for me... I've just come to accept that the purpose in life as I see it is whatever purpose you decide to attribute to it, which is why I end up working so hard all the time. Because to me, I want my life to be about sharing stories and connecting with people and, Mm -hmm. and having conversations about topics that are important and interesting and meaningful and, and, Mm difficult to come to a conclusion about but to other people you know the the purpose of their life is to have a whole bunch of friends and be able to get off work and go out and have a beer or go out to the mountains on the weekend or something yeah there's nothing wrong with that live and let live man exactly it's all just and that's what they do in arrival so that was the loop around is they just live and let live and in 3,000 years, they'll have to help these heptapods if they don't forget, uh, because people are a very forgetful group. We are. Also, I was trying to figure out, <laughs> I keep adding more things here, but I was trying to figure out if anybody else was, was having the same effects that Louise was. And I think what it came down to is, is my, my answer was no, uh, because the only other person who was getting close to learning the language at all would have been like fully learning the language would have been Ian. And he obviously had no idea what was going on. Like he was completely, it wasn't happening to him. She also made physical contact with them too, though. That was the other thing. Yes. Yes. And touched their like ink and stuff too. But then she writes a book about it, which means that anybody who reads that book and studies it could learn that language, which does that mean that the entire human race is going to become essentially out of time not out of, like not running out of time but like stepped out of time like they're able to like out of touch with time or doesn't experience time linearly like we do and how would how would humanity how would our society look if we had the ability to see the truth of our future on a whim if we were to step away would would all this denial about the the effects of what we're doing still exist if we could look to the future would people still try and argue that it was something else or or would people still try and argue against certain behaviors would people still do shitty things if they realized how it would affect the future i think it depends on the person and i think it'd be really hard to gauge because you know your actions can affect one person and then another and another and another like it's just a ripple effect right yeah And then there's also the argument of, like, if you see it, theoretically, it's already changed. But also, theoretically, if if you can see it happen, then it's already happened and there's nothing you can do about it, depending on your perspective. You know, the idea of determinism would be that in in whatever form you believe in determinism, that things are preordained and that it will happen regardless. There's the non-religious theory, which is that everything in the universe happened all at the exact same time and we're just living it out in time because we're right three-dimensional right. beings yeah. versus beings that can see physical time so i don't know i don't getting know. a little heady ryan 
A little heady, a little metaphorical, man. I just like talking about this kind of stuff, man. That's all you yeah, know. Scratches an itch, man. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, that was Arrival. It's a great movie. It's definitely worth a watch. It was nominated, by the way. I meant to say this before. Uh, it was <laughs> nominated for Best Sound Mixing, and it won Best Sound Editing. Yeah. I did, while I was in film school, I did a, like a short five-minute video essay on that. Um, and it was one of those things that I didn't really want to get into in this because it was going to get really complicated. But the sound mixing and sound editing is phenomenal, and it serves a lot of great purposes as well, which is why it won those awards. And you should just watch it because it has a lot of important things to say. Go watch it right now. This exact instant. Yeah, right now. Like, if you're not already watching it, you should be because how could you even listen to this podcast if you haven't seen it? Like, I'm guessing that everybody has it in their Blu-ray collection and just doesn't know it. Like me. As always... There are spoilers in this episode. So if you haven't seen the movie, watch it before you listen to this podcast. Because we talk about things, but we don't necessarily explain them in as much detail as we could if you haven't seen it for them to make sense. So watch it first, probably. Because spoiler alert. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you guys are all uh, hanging in there in your uh, little self-isolation chambers out there. And... Uh, We'll catch you guys next time. Let's flatten this thing.